Hey, welcome back to the Creative People Time podcast with me, Josh Loera from Time Machine Creative. Uh, we got a great episode today with my guest, Alejandra Villasis, very talented, very knowledgeable designer and um, fun story, cool story about traveling and learning about herself as a creative and just kind of hanging out with her. So yeah, fun guest. We met in a clubhouse room introducing Latinos with podcasts and stuff like that. I was getting mine started. She was getting her started and I was a guest on her podcast and now she uh, is finally a guest on my podcast. Um, my episode of her podcast, I guess, does not come out until November, uh, I believe is when she said, but she's got a bunch of episodes out right now, so go check it out. Um, it's called Do I Need School to Be, and her uh, Instagram at is uh, D-I-N school, the number two, B. Uh, go check her out. The, her Her links and accounts are going to be in the show notes, of course, but yeah, she's a, she's a fun personality. We talk design, Latin America, Germany, Netherlands, and more. So definitely fun time. Um, but uh, before we get into that, I did want to give a quick update about myself. I'm coming up on uh, six months being out here in Guatemala, and uh, it has been a trip. It's been fun. I've been learning a lot about myself and learning a lot about uh, my creative flow and my creative uh, future and how I want to be going about that. So, yeah, stay tuned on my socials and and uh, I'm going to have a blog post going a little bit deeper about that. So if you want to check that out. As you may know, I have a couple of issues of my comic book out, Nawali, Modern Aztec Heroes. It's um, definitely a labor of love, and takes me a whole lot of time, a whole lot of time to draw that out and put it out. Um, and hopefully, as these new issues come out, you will see some of my skills improving. Um, but that's that's something that I've felt um, needs to be on the on the higher part of my priority list. So I spend a lot of time doing that, and uh, I hope. I hope it resonates with you. If, if at the very least for me, it's a practice of improving my storytelling skills and my art skills. But um, at the very most, I would like it to be a fun story where brown kids are represented as the superheroes that they can be, and brown people, um, and you know, showing some representation in that superhero nerd culture that you know, I love so much and hopefully some of y'all do, but check it out. Two issues are out. I mentioned on the last episode that I'm going to be more consistent with these episodes. So this is part of that. I think when I'm not doing a, um, a guest interview that I'll do a solo, uh, episode and have some of those on deck for you guys. So I think the next one after this will be something like that. So last update before I get into the uh, the interview, I am going back to the States, making a trip up to Houston 
and up to visit my family. So that is pretty, that's very, that's pretty exciting. I haven't uh, seen my family in a little while. I went to Houston uh, about three months ago. Um, but this time around, I'm going to have a little bit more to do. I'm going to be shipping out some of my hard, not hard covers, but printed copies of my comics to some of those people that have ordered it or um, one of the the people who own the NFT get a copy, a special copy of it. Um, and I have made some available on my site. If you do want to purchase a copy of it, best to do that by the end of this week if you're listening to this on uh, September 2nd. Yeah, just a different kind of trip. I'm going to have some some stuff to do. I'm going to meet up with some friends and um I'm going to get to see this printed version of my copy of my co- of my comic and and that's pretty exciting to me since I've only seen it in digital format so far. Uh so very exciting things. And then I get to go home and visit my family. It's my mom's birthday and I'm going to be spending some time with my mom and my brothers and my dad. I haven't seen them in a minute, so yeah. That's going to be fun. And then I'm going to get back, get back to drawing and making stuff for y'all. I hope you stay tuned for more cool stuff coming out of the Time Machine Creative Vault. But without further ado, we have Alejandra Villasis, the graphic designer and service designer living in the Netherlands, killing the game. Alejandra, how are you doing this morning? Hi, Joshua. It's good. It's it's a weirdly sunny day in the Netherlands, which has me a little bit freaked out. I don't trust it. I don't I don't trust sunny weather in the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah, sound that does sound suspicious just the just the sound of it. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the Netherlands is a weird place that it's always raining and it's always gloomy and there is these rare, rare days in which you have sun. And still, I keep expecting it to start bursting into water. I, I that that's my expectation, to be honest. <laughs> nice, nice. And I said I said good morning because it's, it's morning here, but obviously out there it's it's evening, right, or at least afternoon. It's six p.m. right now. Six p.m. Nice, cool. Well, I guess with that, uh, how about yeah, you introduce yourself a little bit, like just your you know who you are, where you're at, what you do. Yeah, so uh, real quick about me, um, Alejandra Villasis, or Alex. I live in an English-speaking country, so I go by Alex for people who, for whom it's easier. I got tired of people mispronouncing my name, and then that, or getting the Lady Gaga song, Alejandro, sung at me. It happened way too many times. I got tired of it, and I was like, yeah, my grandparents call me Alex, so I will go by Alex. And what do I do? I am a graphic designer and service designer, which means that I don't design only visual things, but I also design services and products and stuff like that. That is something that I'm starting. I I discovered that and just started this year. And yeah, I'm working on a couple projects on that, which is really fun. I 
lived, like I said, in the Netherlands. This is the fourth country I've lived in. I was originally born, originally born. That's I was born in Ecuador. Uh, my my mom was an immigrant. She moved to well, my dad migrated to Honduras where he met my mom, and then they both moved to Ecuador. Then my older sister and I were born. My younger sister as well. Then when I was fifteen, we moved to Mexico. And then when I was 18, we moved to Germany. And then uh, I stayed there for longer and I became a German citizen. And as soon as I got my passport, I moved to the Netherlands. <laughs> it, it, it's weird. Like I got my passport in February and I decided to move in April. I was like, yeah, I'm moving. And the reason I moved is because I had decided that I wasn't really happy at my full-time job. I mean, I was. It was a great job. I, love, I still work for the company. But it felt like I wanted to do more and I wasn't satisfied creatively. And I said, you know what? I want to know what else there is in my field. I've never gone to university. I want to try it out. I'm a German citizen now. I don't have any restrictions. So I decided to move to the Netherlands to go to the Willem de Koenig Academy, which is a great design school here. Wow. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's a great synopsis of of uh your your path going from from uh from ecuador all the way to the netherlands that's a that's a that's a big jump um but i guess going back to to ecuador how much time did you spend in in ecuador um so from the time i was born to when i was 15 and leaving was always the goal kind of because i went to a german school so there are for some reason, probably that has to do with World War II, because everything has to do with World War II. Uh, Germany has schools, like German schools, all over South America. And when I was eight, my I was in an American school. I was in the Abraham Lincoln School, learning a lot of English from the time that I was three to the time that I was eight. And then one day my parents heard that there were openings in the German school in my city, in Guayaquil. And... Yeah, so it was this, uh, they said, okay, let's take the girls, let's see if they make it in. We kind of didn't, my older sister and me, we didn't. Uh, so my parents showed up with all our ribbons and all the awards and stuff, like very happy. And the principal of the school told them, so your daughters don't know how to count. And they're like, but they're really smart. They're like, we're not saying they're not smart. We're saying that the, that the school they're in is not a good school. But we still want them, and our parents are saying are thinking to themselves: if they did so poorly in the exam, why do they want them? It's like, well, the older one, which is my older sister, wouldn't give up the exam. The time was up, but she would not give up the exam until she finished it. And I would, I didn't even try. I just gave the exam to the teacher, said, "I don't know how to do this," and started talking to her asking questions about the school, asking questions about the exam. So basically one of us was relentless and the other one was really curious, which they really liked. So they brought us in and then we started learning German, both of us. And by the time that I was 12, my parents sent us to Germany for seven weeks as an exchange program. So I was 12 and my sister was 13 and we fell in love with Germany. So from then on, the goal was to finish high school and eventually go to university in Germany. So the goal that immigration was always part of the plan. And it did happen. It just took a different path. 
Yeah, no, definitely. Um, that's really cool. I this is the first time I've heard of like German schools in South South and Central South and Central America. Um, it, I have heard of American schools, obviously. Um, I, I was just meeting. I just talked with the guy from Honduras who went to uh, an American school out there. Um, so, but the school that you were coming from, you said that was a that was the you the education I guess you got there wasn't as good. Was it was it like a kind of a, a lower income type school or? What? I don't think so. I think it was more like the whole marketing thing of an American school probably somebody who just wanted to use the tag that this is an American school and that's why they called it the Abraham Lincoln school and I don't think the school was bad I just think it wasn't to the level of the German school uh, we had good things for example we had uh, half days in English half days in Spanish so the kids that came out of there were fluent and also we were eight we were eight and nine so I don't know how much kids can learn at that time I don't know if it got better eventually I know the school is still open and I know that they do fine so i but in latin america most of like we because we are upper middle class we went to like private schools it's all like private schools i know that people that come out of there are okay but i know also that the german school has a bit of a higher standard because um it's partially funded by the german government so if the school doesn't have a certain level they will not fund it anymore so they have to be very rigorous about who they let in and if other schools will give you like if you fail your year they give you like two chances to make it the german school will be like no sorry but we cannot afford to keep students that are not up to par so it's it's i think it's more rigorous standards and they have different focus points so there are schools that are more focused on the social aspects the german school happens to be more focused on math and science than other schools so yeah it's about finding the one that fits you and we realized my parents realized quickly that my sister and i needed something more challenging so when the school said when the german school said yeah so they need to even out they need to take the summer or in that case the winter break which is in our case it's january february and march and they need to go to uh tutors to get up to level and in three months my sister and i caught up with everybody else in the school and yeah we did great so that's awesome that's awesome uh and what did your parents do or do they do uh, well, my dad is an in Mike sounds. Uh, yeah, so my dad is an engineer. He is he has an engineering degree in agronomy, and he's the CEO from uh, a company in Mexico. Um, well, COO, I don't know, like upper management of a company in Mexico that manu uh, receives coffee, manufactures it, labels it, packages it, and then sells it to different uh, coffee sellers around the world. So basically yeah coffee and my mom studied communication then she stayed home with us when we were little and after that she had her own entrepreneurial things like she had her own businesses she worked as a teacher for a while and now she's focused on learning dutch because she also lives in the netherlands so she can eventually work for the government hopefully helping immigrants adapt to be living in the netherlands because we realized that she has a particular set of skills which is learning knowing how to immigrate for different countries. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I might have to hit her up sometime. Yeah, it's it's a process. It's it's a process. I, I was talking to somebody. I was um, talking to Dali from Dali Talks the other day. And oh. we were talking about, yeah, we were talking about immigration. And she was saying, yeah, you have such an interesting life story. And I'm like, 
is it? It's just my kind of just my life. But yeah. then she was telling me there are people that have never changed cities or neighborhoods. Yeah. So. Yeah, especially like especially in like South and Central America and, and Mexico, you know, there's you know there's limitations. You know, yeah. a lot of them. Not just that. I mean, of course, there are the financial, like political, socioeconomical limitations. Of course, there's that. But there's also that I think that we're so entrenched in our communities and in our families that the idea of leaving them, it's completely foreign. So to give you an example, um, one of my cousins, she did a master's degree in Spain. And she, then she decided that she wanted to go back and live in Ecuador. Because for her, not being close to her family, to her friends and so on, was unconceivable. For me, it was more of, okay, so I've, I've done it before. I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, definitely, it's definitely like a trait. Like I think depending on the person, like whether you can, you can or you can't like be away from, you know, the tight knit relationships sometimes that you create with your family. Um, and that being said, like you're so close in age to your sister that were you guys pretty tight cl- grown up? Uh, with my older, so I have two sisters. My older sister is oh. a year and a half older than me. There was no Netflix in the nineties. Clearly children were just popping around the globe. <laughs> um, we have a joke in my family that, so my, with my, I'm the seventh from no, I'm the I'm the twelfth from thirteen cousins or fifteen cousins or so on on my dad's side, and we did the math and we were like, for five years people were popping children like crazy because uh, it's like all my dad's siblings. And we were like doing the math and we were like, every six months somebody was announcing they're pregnant. What's wrong with you people? But it was <laughs> the nineties, um, the eighties and the nineties. Um, but yeah, it was a whole thing with my older sister. Uh, we were very competitive with each other because we have very opposing personalities. Um, but it's the thing that we will meet up. She lives in Germany. So we'll meet up, be like cats and dogs for one day, but then we're like, Oh, you're my sister. I love you. And with my younger sister, we're pretty tight. Uh, she is 17 now. So she's in the teens and yeah, we're just really close maybe because he's very mature and not very childish, so we meet in the middle. <laughs> nice. That's really cool. So you said you you uh you and your sister have very opposing personalities. Like growing up, like did you realize that early on? Like like what's you, what's yours versus hers? Uh we always knew that we, my my parents and we we always knew that we were very opposed. Um uh, my sister She's classic older kid. She wants to control. She is very opinionative. She's very dominant and she's very strong in her opinions and she wants to impose them. I, on the other hand, classic second child, uh, was very loose and very mellow and very like, yeah, okay, we're playing this now. Cool, we're playing this now. I'm good. It was very jolly and very like not caring which meant that I was basically off the air. I was always like, la, 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 la. And she was more of, let's get this done. So she always did better in school than I did because she was more focused and, and so on. So, and more mature than I, than I was. And now I'm still pretty childish. I still have like a jolly personality. But it's weird because we bring that out in each other. Um, 
we were, I was talking about it with my parents when we were in Mexico, saying like how I have lived with my sisters individually for longer than they have been together, but somehow they are more similar to each other in personalities. Interesting. Yeah, because from the time that I was, from being born to being, well, to 17, I lived, my older sister and I will live in the same house. We're always together. Then my sister went to Mexico, to Northern Mexico for a year. Then uh, we moved all to Germany. Then we lived together, uh, just her and I, for like three years until I moved out. I moved to Hamburg, a different city for work. And so all that time. So from zero to 24, we were always together, mostly. and Or living in the same house. And then uh, with my younger sister, um, so from the time she was born to then until she was uh, seven, that's when they moved back to Ecuador. That says seven years. And then in Rotterdam, I am I moved with my parents. When I first moved here, I lived with her for a year. Then we shared a room. And yes, I was 26 sharing a room with a 15-year-old. That was, <laughs> that was fun. That was fun times. Um, but yeah, so and now like I'm staying in this apartment with her and went to Mexico together. So all around, I've spent more time with them separately together than they have had with each other. And still, they are more similar in personality. Like Nuts. little things, like little things. I wake up and I'm talking and I'm happy and they're more like a s- slow wake up and yeah. everything. They're more de- determined and more cutthroat and more in their in their own space. We always joke that they're cats and I'm a dog, basically. <laughs> I like that. I like that. No, I, I have a very similar experience with, you know, my older brother and, and myself. I'm kind of like the jolly, you know, creative one he is kind of the more structured you know rule follower um and that being said did that the did that personality the second kid as you describe it did that lend itself to being creative like right off the bat or do you remember was that always a part of your your childhood or your self i think so i think that i, I was always drawing i was always like in my head making up stories like uh, making up games for for to play by myself or with my sister uh, we used to play act out a lot that I would tell her, okay, these are the characters. This is what we're doing. We have to just act it out and just playing with invisible things. My parents, when I was little, they thought I was seeing ghosts because I said that I had a puppy and I would say like, no, mom, don't close the car door. My puppy needs to get on the car or saying my little brother is sitting here because I really want her brother. And my parents looked at each other and said, she's either seeing ghosts or she's crazy. And they were like, okay, she'll, if she doesn't grow out of it, we have a problem. But if she grows out of it, it's fine. And yeah, so always in my head, just thinking uh, thinking and asking questions and drawing and doing music and stuff like that. So yeah. And then for a stint, because I was living in Latin America, and let's face it, creative professions are, I thought I really like design, but I don't want to be designing wedding invitations forever. And like. Be creative professions were not a thing that I thought that I could do. So I said, okay, what else can I do? I could do like architecture or I can do um, bioengineering for a while. <laughs> and it wasn't until I failed at a German high school that I took a creative profession as something serious that I was going to do. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I was going to, I was going to ask that too. Like, you know, like you said, in Latin, I, 
Well, I'm not familiar with with the culture in Latin America, but generally, um, in the states, you know, yeah, the creative professions are do seem kind of limiting or like less possible or less income. And you know, with parents, um, one of them in in engineering and the other one, you know, communications is is a relatively creative yeah. field. So I was wondering. So so it sounds like it took you a while to realize that it was a possibility to, to, uh, yeah, yeah. That that's the thing. It's, and it's not because my parents didn't tell me that I could do it. Like my parents always told me, if you want to be a hairdresser, be a hairdresser. We just want to be the best hairdresser there is. So if no matter what you do, do it, but you have to be, not be the best at it, but give it your all, like do it passionately, give it your all. And so that was always like their mantra. Like we don't care what you do, just, do it passionately and do it well and be a good person. And, but still in Latin America, like creative professions, they're not well supported or we're not we're paid. It was never about prestige, really. It was more about um, what kind of future are you going to have? Or are you going to get paid for this eventually? Yeah. So it was coming from like outside of the family, like school and society and et cetera. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was more from not seeing it also not, not seeing people in creative professions being like okay this is something that you can do like you have school fairs then you like meet doctors and you meet engineers and you meet whatever but you like seeing a designer uh, seeing as somebody saying like hey this is how I do my job that never really happened so I keep thinking maybe if I had met somebody in school that told me I do service design this is what I do it's a lot of creative thinking it's knowing a lot it's being curious about things, maybe I would have landed on it earlier. But I think because we we think designer, we think artist, and that's not necessarily aligned. To to give you an example of how it is, um, every time I go to Ecuador for Christmas, uh, we do Secret Santa in my family. It's something that we do because there's there's a lot of us, so a present for each is kind of impossible. <laughs> so we do Secret Santa. And every time I participate, I get acrylics, paints, and canvas, and uh, brushes and canvases. It's something I don't use, <laughs> but I keep getting it because they associate, like I did back then, being a designer, it's being an artist. Being an artist means that you paint, and if you don't enjoy painting, I don't particularly enjoy it. Um, immediately, you scratch that as that. That's what it is. But it's kind of in the medical profession or in health or in health that people think, oh, if you're in health, you're a doctor. There are four million professions inside the field that have nothing to do with patient care. Like maybe you are a geneticist and you never meet a patient, or maybe you're a nurse and you are all about patient care. So I think it's there's a gap there that needs to be open on what professions actually exist and why it's available. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. It, it does exist outside of like this, like creative fields too. I feel like uh, in engineering, you know, I have a background in engineering. People, you know, what's a civil engineer versus a mechanical engineer, or like a geotech versus a structural? And it's like, but um, as far as you know, art and design, that is definitely true. That people don't really understand the the difference, you know one's very structured one's very loose or one's in there's like a whole like spectrum in between um yeah so, i like to say, i like to ahead. point out like the difference between an artist and a designer 
is that the artist pursues their own fascination while the designer pursues the fascination from somebody else. So mm-hmm. if you are an artist, like let's say topic of sustainability, and no, let's let's make it even smaller. Uh, plastic in the ocean. Let's say plastic in the ocean is a thing that you're passionate about. If you're an artist, you will follow your own passion. If you're an artist, you will go for, you will dive into a cave and see how much plastic you can find, and you'll try to date it and look at where the plastic came from or how it worked, and you'll make let's say an exhibition about it. If you're a designer, in like my case, a service designer, you will look at that information, collect that data, and see how you can propose a solution for that. Or you will talk to the people that have to do with the plastic, or you will point at the problem. So it really depends on how what the end goal is, whether the end goal is to satisfy your own curiosity or is to satisfy the one from somebody else. Yeah, that's a that's a big that's a big deal, and it I I uh, I do a little bit of both, or I do. A, I do a lot of one and a little bit of another, but, um, and it, deciding which one to go into is definitely a a process of like figuring out and knowing yourself. So when you decide like, oh, it's possible to go into creative fields, um, did you know that about yourself that you liked a certain like, like design versus art? Um, I knew that I didn't want to do solely art and also artists and designers, they're not mutually exclusive. Like they can combine, they can coexist. I think they coexist beautifully. And also being an artist is not like, what is an artist? Somebody that approaches things creatively and with certain level of mastery or with a level of beginner level. So you can be a surgeon and your tools are your brushes, and you can be an artist of cardiac services or cardiac surgeries. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so you can be an artist in anything. It's just like we limit it to visual art when there are so many other types of art. Uh, but yeah, to answer your question, uh, I, w- I mean, I was always attracted to design. I was. I remember I w- when I was little, I had this book, uh, Brown Bear. Uh, the man who wrote it and illustrated it just passed away. His name escapes me, but uh, it will come back to me in a second. He also wrote the book, The Hungry Caterpillar. And I remember being really little and fascinated with that book because of how it was designed, because I thought how the animals were drawn was so quirky and interesting, and it was so textured, and the color combinations were so amazing, and I was fascinated by that. And, or looking at, my mom got us this illustration book it's not a illustration book it was like 101 stories and how it was illustrated how the letters mixed into the images and then uh, we had this children's encyclopedia and I was fascinated by how it was made by how some pages were completely different than others how every spread told a story about that particular topic so I was always fascinated by it I just couldn't give it a name and by the time that I got into design, I got into design really, I remember that I was in, so when you move to Germany, when you want to go to school in Germany, uh, Germany doesn't recognize any high school degrees that are not German. So they force you to make an extra year, which goes in a place called Studienkolleg, which is like the last year of high school. You're redoing the last year of high school. And I, in my head, I wanted to be an engineer back then. So I went to something called T course, which is technical course in which you get math, physics, chemistry, and German for subject. And then at the end of it, you present the test, you pass it, then you can apply to university in Germany. I felt that 
miserably, like miserably. I it was all my fault. I thought I was too smart to study. I got into Tetris at that time. It was awful, and I failed it. And I got really depressed. And around that time, my sister had started medical school in Germany because she had done already a medical uh, one year of medical school in Mexico, so she could just swoop in. And we lived in the outskirts of town with my parents. And she said, hey, I want to move into the city center because I don't want to live in the suburbs. I want to enjoy my college experience. I want to live in the city center. Uh, you're not doing anything. You're very sad. How about we move in together to like the center of the city? And we did. And we just so happened to have moved across the street from a design school, like across the street from a design school. I didn't even know it existed. Wow. And... Then I thought, okay, um, I have nothing to do now. I have to wait a year so I can retake the test. So you know what? I will do design school for a year just because I have nothing else to do. Maybe I'll like do something fun, something that I enjoy doing. Worst case scenario, I'll learn something new. And I never left. <laughs> and I loved it. And I realized that I had landed in the thing that I was supposed to do and that I enjoyed doing. And I never left. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, that's that's so that's such a that's such luck almost, right? Yeah. Exactly. That's a great coincidence. So that's awesome. Um so once you're in school, I mean, you've been going to a German school for a long time for a good amount of time now. Um how was it get, going to school in Germany with Germans? Um I guess, mm, I don't know. Honestly, I think I was lucky that the school I was in was really small. So I had very few classmates. I think we, were, we started as a class of 20 and we became a class of eight. Um, so wow. you had really a one-to-one -one connection with the teachers. There were a couple of teachers that were very um, attentive, in good intentions, I guess, saying like, if you need a dictionary, just let us know and you can bring one to class. And I'm like, no, I've I've spoken German for a while. I spoke German. I learned German for seven years, and now I live here, so I am fine. But still, thank you for asking. And yeah, Germans are very different. Germans are very. I had gone from Schleswig-Holstein, in which we were very international. Like you had the uh, Muslim countries little group, you have the Asian countries little ball, you have the Latin American countries little ball, and then you have a bunch of Americans spread out everywhere. Um, but yeah, so. Going from that to going to a full-on German school with only Germans, uh, it was weird. It was different. Uh, it was a lot of adapting to how Germans are because they're very particular. Love them to death, German myself, but they're very particular people. So that was fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's something about like, uh, yeah, Germans, and I feel like other you know countries in that area, not so much like. France, but more, you know, more towards like the Netherlands and stuff where mm -hmm. there's like very, very detail oriented, very type A and, and, and I'm, you know, I'm definitely not that. Um, so what kind of stuff are they teaching in this little school? What kind of um, like, do you remember any like fun stuff that you're learning and doing? Yeah, I remember it, it like the thing that I like about that school and what I'm very grateful for is that um, they took the time to teach us. The programs like we had a class that it was only like 
we had a class that was called Adobe, which we went from A to Z from Adobe Illustrator. Then next year is A to Z Photoshop. Then next year is A to Z uh, InDesign. Then we're going to mix it all together. And we had that. We had a typography class that I really didn't like because the teacher sucked. But <laughs> aside from that, it was nice. We had a um, drawing class in which we just drew. We had color uh, color theory class. We had a bunch of class very focused on getting the fundamentals of design. And then later we had typography again, but then about how to make a spread, how to make letters work together, how to make compositions. Then we had branding class. To, um, so everything like to, to build the pillars of a functional designer, a designer that can be hired to do a job. Not necessarily the most creative one, I think, but definitely the most employable one. And yeah, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, and it was a nice contrast from this. That was a technical degree. That wasn't a university. That was a technical degree. Mm-hmm. And then that's a nice contrast with my current university, with the William Deconic Academy, because that is a very creative university. So they're making very creative designers. I am not sure if they're the most employable designers, but I'm sure that they're the most creative ones. Yeah, like that. that's a really important first step. People don't realize these tools, like they're not just, you know, they assume, like you were saying earlier, your art, people think artist, designer are the same thing. And they think if you have a paintbrush and a pencil, you can do these, uh, you can create the same kind of, level stuff in the in these programs but they're super technical and the more you dive into it the more you realize that you can do with it and it's you know even even i learned on the internet but there's stuff that i know that i don't know and i know that i can't do with some of these programs um so it's it there's there's you're a technician um a craft like a craftsman that you have to learn the tools first before you can get to the like art or creative or like execution side of it exactly and there are there are things that i think you get i I think you can learn a a program very well online i think there are amazing tutorials on youtube god knows that i go to youtube tutorials all the time and i say how do you like free like free select hair on photoshop again like free tutorial how do you do it and i follow the steps and i do it and then i forget and i do check it out again a month later um, but to give you an example, there is this wonderful artist that I love. His name is Temi Coker. Um, he is originally from Nigeria, but he's currently based in the U.S. His wife, Afrikinia Coker, is one of my favorite photographers. I love her style. And he makes this very, he has his own style. He has an, he's an amazing style. And I always wonder how he does his patterns because his pattern work is exquisite. And he has a class on Skillshare in which he teaches you how to do it. And I sat there and thought, how did this person discover this? This is fiddling with Photoshop for 10 years, not the time, but maybe like for two years, just fiddling, seeing how he can mix the processes, just creating processes and running them 20 times, getting that perfect amount of pixelation or of change in the form to get it to this a particular shape. And I just learned how to do it in an hour because of this, of this tutorial. So yeah, it's condensing that time into very little, into, into those, those two years into an hour class. Yeah, man. Yeah. Skillshare is awesome. And I love that because there's like these people that are so specialized in something and they can just go deep into like that, that thing that they know. Um, 
yeah, yeah that's and so their mistakes like they probably already did it wrong 40 times and they're saving you all those mistakes yeah yeah that's that's definitely yeah skillshare <laughs> i'm not sponsored by them but if whoever's listening you you're looking to learn something quick uh go check out skillshare hey, if they want to sponsor you you would would you say no to skillshare if they wanted to sponsor you hell no i wouldn't say no that would be awesome <laughs> so let's put it out in the universe right now skillshare you if you're skillshare. listening to this josh will take a sponsorship <laughs> yes i would yes i would um so yeah i mean skillshare is great but you know you you started off you know uh, in these, in these real, I say real institutions, um, formal, let's call it formal. formal. There you go. You got better words than me. Um, as far I as have a podcast about it, so <laughs> yeah, it's good. So you went from that one school to another school. What was the name of the second school that you went to in Germany? Uh, the second, uh, no, the, this is the German one though. The German one it's called, okay. um, wait, I'm translating in my head. Uh, the uh, communication school Lübeck, so mm. the or working back Kunstschule Lübeck, so it's working art and communication school of Lübeck. Yeah, that's I can say it in German if you want to. Do it. Okay, in German it's the Back Kunstschule Lübeck. Cool. I just said it cool. very slowly to like get my pronunciation right. And nice. That and then I graduated from that. I immediately got a well, not immediately. I. Very quickly, I think like two months after graduation, I got a job in a very big tech company called Statista uh, to do infographics. So I had found out in the Verkunschule in my art school in Germany that I loved infographics, that I really loved making inf complicated information easy to understand. So when I found Statista, I applied for a job and they were looking for somebody who spoke Spanish and could do graphic design. So I was like, Right there and I was there for a year and a half and during that time I realized like yeah I like it here but I don't love it and I love my colleagues I like what I'm doing I love my friends here but it's not necessarily what I want to do forever and that's when I decided I want more so I started researching and I found the Willem de Koenig Academy which is the university in the Netherlands Ah, okay, cool. So, yeah. you, so, so that's when you went to the Netherlands. Yeah, and just like full disclaimer, I'm, I'm in no way trashing Statista. I think it was a great job. I still work for them. That's the thing that I, I like them so much that I they hire me as a freelancer and I still freelance for them. Awesome. But I think the key thing is that it's a job that's great. For example, for somebody who has kids, somebody that mm. wants to show up at eight a.m., know that they can leave at five p.m. and just leave their work at work. And yeah, for somebody in that position is great. Um, but I was still, I was not in that position. I'm not in that position yet. So I wanted to do more and do more creative work and take more risks. And I went and took a giant one. <laughs> That's awesome. And so the school in the Netherlands, and forgive me if I can't pronounce them, but um, the when you go there, you said, you mentioned earlier that this is like a more artsy or cre more creative focus like is it like a culture shock when you go there oh totally 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 so first of all i didn't enter the school because of my portfolio they actually hated my portfolio what 
because my portfolio was really finished, like I had include my graduation project, I had include uh, client work that I had done, I had include um, projects for other projects for university, and everything was very finished and very polished. They hated that. They wanted to see my process. They wanted to see journals full of scribbles and of my slow descent into madness. That's what they wanted to see. And me coming from a very formal German background uh, or from a very square place, which is German is very square. It's no point denying it. It is very square, at least where I was. Um, I didn't show them that. Um, so they, in my acceptance letter, they wrote, congratulations, we have accepted you. Just so you know, we hated your portfolio, but we really like your interview. And what? I thought, okay, I guess my mouth saved me again, repeating the story from when I was in school in Ecuador, when I went to the German school in Ecuador, my mouth saved me again. Um, but yeah, it was a culture shock to, to give you like an example. A lot of German things have rubbed off on me. For example, punctuality. I am very, my, my planner is very organized and I am trying to be as punctual as possible. When I show up to my first day at the VDKA, that's why it's called the university, I showed up there. I had to be there at nine. I was there like 10 to nine. And I was shaking. I was so nervous. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. I go to the front desk and tell them like, hey, it's my first day. I don't know what to do. And I'm already late. And the front desk lady, it's like, you're 10 minutes early. You're, you're fine. Just chill and I'm like yeah but I don't know what to go and should I register somewhere it's like yeah I'll take you to the auditorium she takes me to the auditorium and the presentation started at 9 30 because the Dutch are more loose when it comes to time so, huh. and everybody was so chilled they were like yeah like 9 10 9 15 you're fine I'm like, no it's not fine <laughs> it's set at nine here it says nine why is nobody recognizing this <laughs> That would bother me a little bit. Yeah, but it's, it's just the way they are. To give you another example, when I uh, when you come to the Netherlands, when you move here, you have to sign up so people know. It's a it's a European thing, actually. You have to go to your municipality, to your city hall, and say, like, hey, I live here now. And they give you a number, and you need that number to get a bank account, to do anything. You need that number. And when I showed up there, I looked at the documents they needed, and... I told them, hey, so you want my birth certificate, but that says um, Ecuadorian. Do you also need my uh, naturalization letter? Because everything needed to be translated, of course. So I wanted to know that if I had to pay the extra 100 euros to translate a document that was in German or if it was fine that it was in German. The answer is from the city. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I gotta, I'll go ask my manager. The manager comes. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Do you have to realize that I come from a place, from a country before that, where everything was known? If you go to Germany, for everything, there's a little booklet that has all the answers. And if that booklet doesn't have the answers, there's another booklet that has more specific answers. So somebody, <laughs> so somebody telling me, I don't know, was completely foreign to me. I wanted to lose my mind. <laughs> that's so funny and and i feel like you know in the u.s it's it's that way because people just don't care but it sounds like in this case it was just like no, I don't it was know. just a cultural thing this is, i don't know maybe 
I don't know. I'm like, what do you mean? You don't know? I need you to know this lady. <laughs> and then, but it worked out. Like I adapted. I eventually adapted. And I'm like, okay, if it, they're just more chill about it in the sense that they, they will help you figure out a way. The thing about German, Dutch, and I'm guessing also like West European countries, Scandinavian countries and so on, is that as long as they see you're taking initiative, they will help you. They were more than glad to help you. Like last time I did my taxes in Germany. I So in Germany, like I think there's a huge difference with the U.S. In the U.S., you have to do your taxes yourself every year, right? So Yes, yeah. In Germany, it works differently that you don't have to do your taxes if you don't want to. So mm-hmm. they will take uh, your taxes off, your tax deductions immediately from your paycheck before they give it to you. And then if you want money back, you do your taxes. I see. So let's say that they take, also taxes are super high. Let's say they take uh, 40% of your paycheck from you. Just immediately out. You don't get 40%. And then let's say that that year you applied for a new job. So you used money to find a new job. You bought yourself 500 euros worth in outfits for your new job. Uh, you do your taxes and you say like, hey, I have this deductible. I For my new job, I had to buy clothes. This is it. And they're also like, okay, cool. Here's your money back. But you have to do it. If you don't do it, they just keep your money. So a lot of people don't even bother doing it because it's very troublesome. So they just think, okay, cool. Um, so the first time I did it, it was a nightmare and I couldn't do it right. And I had a friend help me. And the second time I did it, because I was leaving the country, I had more deductibles because I had like moving expenses and boxes and stuff like that. So I do it by myself. I find out the tax office is actually near my house. I didn't know that. That's how ill-informed I was. And uh, I go, I give them my papers. And I'm like, here they are. The lady looks at me and says, this is all wrong. Oh, man. I'm like, what do you mean it's all wrong? It's like you filled out all the wrong boxes. The amounts are completely incorrect. Oh, um, no. Make an appointment. Come back tomorrow. I have time at 10. We'll fill it out together. Don't worry about it. Because that's the thing. If, wow. they, see, if they see you're trying, if they see you're putting effort in it, they will help you. They will more than gladly help you. They just need to know that you're trying. That's so nice. Wow, that sounds like a really nice country now. Yeah, it's it's really nice. It's I. It's a very great place to live. I think it's a great place to be a kid. Mm. And it's a really nice place to grow up. It's more diverse than people think it is. Hmm. And yeah, there are so many things available available to everybody. Just... Let me give you an example. So, for example, in the Netherlands, I I am a European citizen. I think it's because I'm a European citizen also. Um, I can apply for a government relief, which is called TUSLA, which is if I make under certain amount, and I do because I'm a freelancer, so I make under certain amount, they're like, okay, uh, your health insurance is, um, let's to say a number, 100 bucks per month, let's say. We'll give you 75 so you don't have to worry about that. So you can just put up the 25. And I thought, that's a very nice thing. When do I have to give this money back? Because I'm guessing that I have to. And they told me, no, you don't have to give it back. It's fine. Wow. Yeah. My boyfriend was complaining about how high taxes are here, actually. And I <laughs> thought, well, they're high because people like me need help paying their insurance. 
So the idea is that eventually I will not need this help anymore and they will charge me those very high taxes that I will gladly pay because it will help somebody else. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. That's the whole point of it, like trying to to get everybody to to uh to a place where they're they're comfortable and they have the needs and then if you don't then you can help someone out you know yeah exactly so that's that's a beautiful thing what i enjoy the most from living in europe or where i've lived in germany and the netherlands versus living in latin america that you see your taxes working so that's what my father always said he said i'm paying crazy high taxes but my sister went to medical school for 300 euros a semester no, the year, 300 euros a year. And those are for, uh, what's it called? Bureauc- not not bureau- administrative expenses. Wow. And that's like, that's like $200 or something like that, right? Yeah, like- pretty much. Yeah, $200 <laughs> a year. Jeez, that's awesome. Man. Because it's subsidized by the government. My younger sister would have gone to public school there for, I think, $80, $70 a year. And wow getting everything so like also quality education and so on that's really cool that's really cool so this i feel like so netherlands sounds really cool and and so it sounds like you got situated into it pretty quickly like learning everything um and how you know the culture there but um what about the school like what kind of cool like what kind of stuff are you learning there you had told me one time that there's some really interesting education there yeah so what i think that differentiates the verica from my old school is to give you an example when we're learning printing techniques in my old school we learned by examples. We learned, okay, this is uh, silkscreen printing. This is what you can do with silkscreen printing. This is the history of silkscreen printing. Uh, this is a YouTube video by of how it's done. Here's a book of how people did it. You can touch it, you can feel it, you can see what was done with it. In this current school, it's more of, here's a silkscreen machine. Here are the paintings. Here's an assignment, figure it out. What? Really? Or a resource printer or a laser cutter. It's everything set up available to you. And yeah, just experiment. Do things. Figure it out. And then it goes to teach each other. Then it's like you're going to be set up in pairs now. You have to combine your techniques. You have to teach each other. So I was taught how to silkscreen by one of my friends. She taught me how to do it. And then... If you want to learn something else, let's say if you are curious about um, voiceover or audio design, you can go to the audiovisual station and say, I want to learn this. Where's the workshop? There's a workshop there. You can learn how to use the equipment and then you can use it. Or we also have um, material station in which you have wood, ceramics, metal. And if you want to learn how to weld, you can learn how to weld. This is I'm going to teach you in an hour and then you're going to do whatever you want. Wow. That's so cool. And, and, and some people might react to that. Like, well, what, what's the point of like, what's like, why am I paying the school if they're not going to instruct me? But, but that's actually a great way to learn. And especially considering that a lot of this equipment is super expensive. So even just getting access to this equipment is, is a big deal. 
Yeah, that's the thing. That for to give you an example, a riso printer is between fifteen and twenty thousand euros. Wow. And in the school, we get to use it as much as we want to, and then without counting the cartridges, like I think a cartridge is like five hundred euros. It's like yeah, just I book it for an hour. I want to experiment for an hour. So it's all the access to those things, and then also you have the tutors at the stations who are specialists in that in that subject. So if you tell them I want to try this out, they will be. They, most of the time they they'll say okay, here are the equipments to it, and then sixty percent of the time, fifty percent of the time they'll be they'll look at you saying like, oh, that sounds so cool, let's do it together. <laughs> And they'll they'll do it with you. They'll experiment with you. They'll um, there is there is one instructor in that wood station. I will go to war for that woman. <laughs> she has saved me from cutting my fingers off so many times. She has saved projects of mine, and she's just a wealth of knowledge. And I, I I love I will go to war for her. And she's actually doing a master's degree in the university on sustainable on sustainable businesses on sustainable creative businesses. So she's also a student at the university. And yeah, she's amazing. And it's that access to those people. And I think also the key difference is that the teachers that in your regular classes, they not only give you assignments that are very challenging, but they also push you to like push yourself. Like there are teachers that you are just, don't look at me. I'm, this, is a, this is not a, like, well, this is a visual podcast that you're going to put this on YouTube so people can see me yeah. doing that. For those who can't, I'm doing a hand gesture, hiding my face from the teacher. Uh, that you'll be like, "Don't look at me! Don't look at me!" And then others that will tear your work apart, but also make you want to redo it. Be like, "They were so right. I-, I can redo this in a very like taking your Legos, putting them apart, and then encouraging you to put them back together again." In a bit, in a better way, like sort of. In a way that you maybe never saw coming. Ah. To to give you an example, I actually, um, when the pandemic hit, it was right, right in the beginning of the school term, and I failed that term at university. I actually failed it. Like, I, I couldn't focus on the philosophical idea of what plastic is because I was too worried about a global pandemic. So, yeah. Potato, patata, I guess. We had different priorities in that moment. Um, so I failed it. And then I had to... What they do is that they don't have to re, you don't have to redo it, but you have to do a project to do something called a reset in which you don't have to repeat the project that you failed, but you have to take the feedback they give you and make a new project. So I decided I'm going to take this feedback, I'm going to combine it with an elective that I took called biomimicry, and I'm going to make a new project. And the project that came out of that is something I don't think I would have been, I would have been capable or even have thought of if I hadn't gone to this university. Wow. And, and what was the project? Can you describe it in words? Uh, the one that, that passed me, yeah. Um, so I took this class about biomimicry. I became very curious about fungi, or fungi, whatever, however you want to pronounce it. And I realized, I, I made a project about how biomimicry is integrated into our society today in ways that we don't even notice, in ways that we don't even notice. To give you an example, I actually took a fungi 
and I look at a pattern that I made and the pattern reminded me of camouflage. Like, and then I realized, okay, camouflage is biomimicry. We just no longer see it as biomimicry. We see it as a pattern. Like in fashion, mm -hmm. we see it as a pattern. We don't think it's supposed to mimic nature. So I started looking into deep archives of anthropology, trying to find how we got into the things that we got. So for example, there are, like, there are temples in Asia that are encrusted into walls, and it's because we were mimicking what caves are. Mm -hmm. There is this, um, and there's, there's a lot of suppositions. So there are things that we will never know because they're undocumented. For example, there is this um, tribe native to Africa, and they paint themselves red with mud to protect from the sun. And it's integrated to their society. They're, it's in their hair, it's in their clothing. Everything they have is red. And then you also see elephants doing this. So it's completely undocumented. We don't know. But maybe at some point, we looked at what elephants were doing, protecting themselves from the sun with this red clay. And we mimic them. And now today, we are still doing it. And then you go into um, how Velcro was discovered. Velcro was also biomimicry. Then how... Um, going to today how swimwear for swimmers is actually based off uh, the, the skin of sharks, how it has little channels to make that more aqua dynamic. And then into the future of how we're going to keep mimicking um, nature for building structures or for like, actually they're now looking into how uh, termites built their little termite castles that are all, that are actually I think 10 degrees cooler than the outside is because of how they're built. And we're looking into that to see how we're going to build the buildings in the future. So they won't need air conditioning, but they will like self-regulate temperature. So I did an entire timeline with it, a website and stuff, and it was reactive. And I put all my research together in a visual way and like cataloged it by documented, undocumented, confirmed, unconfirmed and so on. Wow. That's so cool. That's so cool. And, and like, I think that's a really important part of um, design and the future of science and art and the way and design and the, and how they're gonna melt together. Um, because uh, there's this one lady at MIT. Have you heard of her? In these in the states, she's she's leading their like their like design lab, and they're all about creating new materials but in a way that is also appealing to people they're, they're is, thinking is, is is her the one that look at silkworms yeah i think so yeah i know i i saw her ted talk and i actually like included her in my timeline her name escapes me right now because i'm terrible Same. at names but i know we were talking about it and yeah she's great yeah it, it is great no that's 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 a really cool project and so you said that if you didn't take some of these classes you wouldn't have you wouldn't have uh, come up with this final project at your time during at your time in the Netherlands at the school. What did you learn about yourself that you didn't expect to? Mm, about myself that I didn't expect to. That's a good question. Mm, I think it was a combination from being in the school and being outside of the school. So when I moved here, I decided that I, 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 I thought, okay, I'm starting university on the 26th. I don't want to have this huge gap on my resume. 
And I also thought, okay, when I graduate, my classmates are going to have an edge over me in the sense that they're younger. So, uh, and I decided that I was going to freelance. So I started freelancing. So my four years of university are four years of freelancing. And it was a lot of balls to juggle. It was a lot of balls to juggle. Some of them are in glass and some of them are rubber and some fall and they're perfectly fine. Some fall or shatter into a million pieces. Um, but I think I learned that I can be resilient, that I can, I, I don't know. It's, I think I it sounds braggy, but I think that I can put up with a lot, that a lot more than I thought I could put up with. That's um, awesome. Yeah, I remember like my classmate, like uh, one classmate of mine who I love dearly, like she's a great person. I love her. But she would come up to me and say, like, I'm, I'm having a mental breakdown. This is too much. And I would just look at her and think, you're only doing this. You're only doing university. I have a base, like I am doing university and I am working an insane amount of hours because also I love saying yes to things. I love saying yes to new projects. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do this new project. I'm going to do this new project. I don't know where I'm going to get time. doesn't matter. I will give up sleep. And yeah, so when she came up to me and said, like, I'm having a mental breakdown, I'm like, oh, then, then what, what am I having then? Uh, <laughs> then who am I? Yeah. And it's like, that's, that's, uh, that sounds like uh, the word I want to use is grit. Yeah. You know, and that's, there's a book about, uh, called Grit by Angela Duckworth. I haven't fully read it, but I watched her TED Talk and some of her stuff in this. And it's all about how, like, grit is one of the most important things um, historically for, for people uh, as far as their level of success that they can reach. And so it sounds like you definitely have that. I hope so. And also, <laughs> the thing is that when I was, I felt like I couldn't give up and that I wasn't, that I had to keep doing it. And every time that it got hard, I started thinking about my mom because my mom also had kids, then stayed at home with us. And then she went to university when my sister and I were already in school. So I thought, okay, when she was in university as well, at the same age that I was, she was not only doing university, but also taking care of an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old and her husband. And we only had one car. So she had to drive us all everywhere to every, and making sure that we all, we're healthy, we're fed, we're happy with all our parts still attached and taking care of school. And she graduated the best of her class. Wow. So, yeah, so every time that it got hard for me, I started thinking like, okay, inside, channel her, channel her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, the parents parents can do that. They're definitely, the, it's, looking back, it, I think every kid, if they're, if they're, they have some kind of insight and empathy for people. They realize how uh, how crazy it is to raise kids and raise you. Like looking back on your own self, like, oh damn, they went through that. Yeah, you know what? I I've had a lot of those moments now that um, because my parents were had us so young, I knew very early on that I didn't want to have kids as soon as my parents did because I figured all the things that I want to do, like, I don't know, going to the bar to going to a bar at 8pm, they couldn't do because they had two little kids at home. And they had to grow up earlier, they had to grow up quicker. And I realized, okay, I want to have those freedoms, I want to experience that. So I don't want to have kids when I'm young. And then I now, so my dad, when he was my age, 
he had some 20, he had an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old. And I keep wow. thinking, what would I do with an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old? I love them. To, I, I love kids to death, but I ask myself, what would I do with them? <laughs> what do they do? Yeah, man. Yeah, my 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 younger brothers both have. I think, yeah, yeah. At least one's the, the oldest on for one of my brothers seven. The oldest for you the other. You just forget I, how many nieces and nephews you have. <laughs> no, I just forget the age. I know that. I know oh, okay. That, yeah, I know that. Yeah, he they between them they have six kids, and so they got they got a lot. And I'm. Yeah, I'm like I know they exist. I just needed a second to remind how old they are. <laughs> Yeah, no, the oldest, my, my brother has a daughter that's much older than my other brother's son. He just turned seven. So trying to do the math anyway. So that makes her like 11. Anyway, so yeah, they're younger than me. And their kids are this age. And I'm like, whoa, I would not, you know, having kids that age are crazy for me. That's the thing that so when I, my, my younger sister was born when I was 12. So I remember the day she was born. I remember helping to take care of her. I remember changing her diapers. I remember wow. her rolling over, playing with her. I remember all those things. Again, I wasn't like super attached to her until she was like six. I, I loved her because she was my sister, but I wasn't super, uh, I like you as a person <laughs> until she was like six. That was when we got really close and those we became tight. Like I'm very honest about it. I, these, I had a biological bond with her and she was fun, but I didn't bond with her like completely until she was a lot older or six older yeah she was older and the thing is that now when I started university and my classmates are so much younger than me they said like wow you're 26 you're gonna be the mom of the class and I'm like can I curse in this podcast <laughs> yeah okay my answer was fuck no <laughs> fuck no I am, I am, I am in here for myself. I am not going to take care of anybody. No. And yeah. then that was one or the other one that the other comment I heard was, um, oh my God, when I am 26, like I want to be married with two kids. Jeez. And my answer is always, I will lend you my niece and my nephew for an afternoon. And you tell me if you still want to have kids after now, I love them dearly. They're two of my favorite kids on this earth. I would, I enjoy them thoroughly. But I also enjoy Netflix. I also enjoy being able to just at 8 p.m. say like, okay, I'm going to just watch TV for four hours or wake up on a Saturday at 11 a.m. and do nothing but, I don't know, fiddle in my computer or go outside and enjoy the weather or do whatever I want without having somebody's survival rely on myself yeah yeah that's definitely i I want to be a kid for for a lot longer myself so i'm definitely not gonna have kids um yeah it's it that's the thing and i, I think also in latin american culture maybe you know that as well that there is this pressure to have kids to be yeah. like yeah we uh kids are such and i think kids are a wonderful thing but i also think that kids should come to people who actually want them mm -hmm. i i have had this conversation with people many times in the sense that when they ask me, when are you going to have kids? And I tell them, I am right now not in a position in which I can fulfill the needs of a child. It, the way that I see it, many times people have kids because, to give you an example, because they want to experience what it's like to be pregnant. To me, that is putting a desire that you have above the needs of somebody else. Because 
pregnancy is nine months, and then you have a person who is going to eventually be an adult. Can you fulfill the needs of a little person? Yeah. If you can, amazing. Have a child. If you're going to love it, amazing. Have a child. If it's just something that you want to feel and you want to have nine months of bliss, even though I personally think pregnancy is a train wreck. <laughs> sounds awful to me. Sounds, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, sounds weird. Uh, yeah. Another topic. Um, but yeah, I think that's a very personal decision. And if somebody doesn't want to have children, that's good for them. I'm not going to force them to have children either. Yeah. I think people, I mean, as a society, it seems like it's standard um, to practice to be asking that not only in Latin America, but in the, in the States, like the way that it's phrased is when are you going to have kids? And it really, if, and that, like you said, it's very private. And if you're going to ask anything, it should be, do you want to have kids? Because that's the real question. Like me and Christine don't, don't even want kids like looking forward. So it's, so the that question's always funny and it's yeah like you don't necessarily have to have kids exactly and then as a woman you get asked yeah but your 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 clock your biological clock and you're gonna regret it not having kids when you're older figured if that happens there are other paths to having children mm -hmm. there's something called foster care there's something called adoption there are so many kids all around the world who want nothing more than parents and if you want the biological aspect, there's also solutions to that. <laughs> yeah, and definitely. Yeah, that's the thing. I'm, I'm the type of person that I, I want to be a parent. That's something that I want to be. I want to shape another human being. I want to... It's going to sound corny, but I, I think I, I got this magical childhood. I was always safe. I was always loved. I was never afraid to go home. I never saw violence in my house. My parents, if they had arguments, they never had them in front of us. My dad never disrespected my mom. My mom never disrespected my dad in any way. And there are two people who are insanely in love with each other. Until this day, they're disgustingly in love. And I want to be a parent because I want to give that to somebody else. And I want to adopt. I actually want to do foster care and adoption one day. Because I know that there are kids out, out there, they're praying that the only thing they want is to have somebody that looks at them and sees that the sun sets and rises because they exist. And that's the reason that I want to be a parent. I, pregnancy is a train wreck to me. I don't, ha I, I don't look at pregnant women and say, oh, I want that. I look at them and I get panic attacks. <laughs> I avoid my friends when they're like in the eighth month of pregnancy, ninth. I avoid them because I, I, my friend Jenna, actually, she be, she goes huge. And I just looked at her and thought, I'm not ready. What if this kid comes now? I don't know what to do. There, should I watch a video on YouTube real quick to know how to bring a person into the planet? I don't know. I am not ready. So I just started avoiding her. Hey, that's a solution. Hey, that's, and yeah, more power to you. I don't think that's a bad choice at all i think <laughs> anyway yeah i think people i think i definitely don't think it looks like a like a day in the park to be pregnant and yeah christine feels the same way she doesn't want to be pregnant and i think the stigma behind i feel like there's a stigma behind adoption and I, I think you know talking about it i think you know moves us towards getting rid of that and that, that is such a big option 
And if we ever do have kids, I think we would end up, yeah, adopting them as well. Yeah, um, and a huge a huge part of the stigma is thinking that they're damaged goods. Like if they, or thinking that if kids are in foster care, it's because they're dangerous. And the truth is that no child is in foster care because of something they did. Right. They're in foster care because of a variety. There, there's a mirage. There is a huge amount of reasons why a child can be in foster care. And in the end, they're kids. They're, whether they come, if they come from a situation of abuse, then they need more safety. Then they need more security. Then say like, oh, but then you're taking a child who maybe was abused in some way. It's like, that's not a reason. To, that's a reason to not leave them there. That's a reason to give them a safe place so they can be productive human beings. So they can, and by productive, I mean, so they're, not that they're productive to society and they're little machines to serve society, but so they can protect other human beings later. It's it's that. And it's saying like, oh, if you adopt, it's because you cannot have kids yourself. It's like, maybe I don't want to have biological children. And yeah. my dad, because he's a very like old school Latin American guy sometimes, he says, it's like, uh, he always tells me, but my genetic material, <laughs> but the, the amazing combination that you and your mother made so you guys came out, what's going to happen there? And I, and I just told him everything, every time I tell him, I think there are 56 other things that you gave me that have nothing to do with my genetic material that oh, are yeah. way more valuable. Like they gave me a work ethic. They gave me respect for others. They gave me curiosity. They gave me safety. They gave me all those things that I think are stronger in their legacy than my genes. So, and who knows, maybe I'll have a biological one for shits and giggles. <laughs> yeah. Be yeah. like, God damn it. Birth control failed. Now I have to do this. <laughs> and I'll complain 99% of the time. Yeah. I bet. No, that's really cool. That's very admirable. And um, yeah, I agree. And in, re- in, in reality, we're all genetically, you know, cousins. We're anyway. basically all the same. It's the, the, the variations in the genetic material from one person to the other. Like, yes, people get caught by DNA. Like people, criminals get caught by DNA evidence. Yes. But in the end, we're all humans. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like you want to do some cool things, you know, as far as like having a kid and adopting in the future. After graduating, it sounds like you went into straight like uh, freelance. What do you like? How well, has I that been? I haven't graduated yet. I'm starting my oh, fourth year. Oh, you haven't year. graduated? No, I'm starting my fourth year of university now. Um, wow. I know what I want to do afterwards. Like, I want to go into service design. There are a lot of very interesting service design uh, agencies in the Netherlands and abroad. So ideally, I would go for an agency called IDEO, which is an American agency led by Tim Brown, and he has a base in Munich. So I speak German, so maybe it's destiny. And But some of the projects that I've done I am currently working with the city of Rotterdam on a project to create a sense of belonging inside the city hall by bringing the people that were, by involving the people who work in the city hall in this project. So when I started it, I knew from the beginning that I wanted it to be, so Rotterdam has a very high, I think it's 10% of the population who is functionally illiterate meaning that they don't know how to read and write, but they function. So I knew that I wanted to do something for people who are challenged in their levels of communication. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're immigrant. That can also mean that they have a disability that limits their communication skills, that they're uh, fresh immigrants 
can mean that they're poor. There's a, a lot of reasons why somebody can be functionally illiterate. And then, I mean, I'm illiterate when it comes to binary code. I cannot read binary. I cannot read Java. So I'm illiterate that way too. And so the project started with uh, defining what being illiterate is. And then it went on to asking the people who work in the city hall that have day-to-day contact with visitors, what they're missing, what they need, what they would like to create in to turn the city hall into a space in which somebody that doesn't speak Dutch or cannot communicate correctly or in a, at the same level as they can, can feel comfortable. So that's something that we're working on with them. I'm also developing with a friend a emotional agility tool for children that should uh, we we hope that it would help kids communicate understand and communicate their emotions without using words and those are two projects that i'm currently working on aside from doing university and doing my own freelance and keeping a relationship going and being close to my family so essentially i don't sleep oh and having a podcast oh wow <laughs> yeah and yeah that's a lot yeah, and the, the the emotional agility tool, it's really it's really cool. It's uh so my um I'm working with a friend on this, she's a teacher. And she came to me with the idea saying like I wanna do something, I want to develop a product, I really don't know what. So it was first looking into what fascinates both of us, what we're interested in, and then coming up with this idea, and that is hopefully going to be my graduation project. And I want it to be not just a concept and development, but also how to take it into market because we have talked about a couple of psychologists and they think it would be interesting not only for children, but also for adults, for people that come in refugee situations, for people that come from trauma and abuse, and yeah, just for people who don't understand emotions. <laughs> Which is a lot of people. Um... Yeah, and it has a lot to do with the fact that when we're little, we're taught that there are good emotions and bad emotions, mm-hmm. that... If you are happy, you look this way. And when you're sad, you look that way. But that doesn't apply to everybody. So some people, when they're angry, they're very abrasive and they're very loud. Other people pull back when they're angry. Some people, when they're happy, they're very jolly. Others can be happy and calm. So the idea of the tool is that it allows you to experience things in your body because a kid will not understand what anxiety is. But you feel emotions in your body first. And also kids between the ages of two and seven, they don't understand abstracts. They, if you tell them, uh, there's this very interesting book called, um, is daddy coming home yet? No, it's, it's, is daddy coming home soon. And it's about a woman whose husband passed, uh, dies suddenly. And she has to explain to her three-year-old son that his dad has died. And she wrote the book for him because she kept telling him dad went to heaven but because he's three, he doesn't understand abstracts. So for him, it's like, oh, so he's coming back soon. When is he coming back from heaven? Or no, your, your daddy went the way of your doggy. Oh, so when is he coming back with the dog? Or is he in a farm? Or all those things. So the book is a way to explain to him with things that he can see what death is. And that's the idea of our tool as well, that kids can identify in their bodies an emotion and also understand that other people feel emotions in a very different way than they do. So get them in tune with that. And if somebody is a refugee, for example, who doesn't speak the language, how can we use this tool to help them tell us what they feel and what they need? Wow. And that's that's all for the city of Rotterdam? 
Uh, no, that's a private project for the city. is to It's an environment. It's a whole... So everything is linked to communication in somehow. Hmm. Um, for, for the city is an environment that the host can manipulate that can be made by them to... It's, it's really weird. It's these booths that have animations and projections inside of them that a person that's feeling anxious, for example, can go into while they wait for their services to relax and to feel like they belong to create a safe space inside a stressful environment interesting so so we're so you're talking about you're going to be studying service design but you're already doing it yeah so i am i already like like this is my final year so i've been doing it for a while now so i've been doing it for like i've been aside from like reading my like in the university service design was something that i discovered through the university and then just experiencing it. And now I'm just experimenting with what I want to do. And then, so when I graduate, I can be like, hey, I did all these things also. Like, look at these projects that I made. Just hire me, please. Um, yeah. And yeah, I realized that I, it felt to me, like I still, when I do freelance design, I still like do logos and do graphics and do business cards and stuff like that. I really enjoy doing that. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I'm really passionate. Like that's where, in service design, that's where my passion is. That's where I'm like, I want to solve this problem. No, and that's really cool. And so, and it's, and people don't really think about it this way, especially in the public se- sector, like the services that we ask our government to do for us. Um, they might not always have the right insight as to how to create those in a way that is going to be effective and in a way that people can actually get the benefits that they want from it and they need from it. So, and I feel like we've been saying the word service design for a while. Can you break down that title a little bit? So, yeah. So service design is is designing a solution and a service can be tangible or non-tangible. So a service can be, to give you an example, um, let's say you go to the hospital and you have to do the sign up and so on. And then you're taking from the waiting room to the diagnostic room. Okay. So the hospital can be, go to a service designer and say, we want to know what's a better way to improve that patient's transition from being in the waiting room to being in the treatment room or in the diagnostic room. So it'd be like, what do you need? It can be that you need an app. Most times it's not going to be that. It can be, okay, we can create an environment for you. How can we enrich this experience? So it's essentially creating experiences that can improve people's life or lead to a target to a targeted thing, to a targeted outcome. Maybe you want a service that will improve the productivity of your workers. So you have to go in and ask them, okay, where are the pain points? Where are the potholes? Where are... How can we work in this together? And it's involved, it's using design thinking to come up with innovative solutions. And I think like right now, a problem is a lot of people think that things are going to be solved by an app. Like the solution is many times very simply, oh, let's do an app. And maybe many times it's not going to be an app to give you an example. Um, earlier this year, I was involved in a project that ended because we didn't get funding for it in which was creating a service for refugees to be able to give them information about services they might need when they arrive into Spain. So in the south of Spain, there's a huge amount of refugees that arrive there. And then before they're sent to their next destination, which is usually a city that they're assigned to, they wait in a particular city for a while. 
And then the question is, if they're a woman that needs gynecological care, where can she go? If they're a family, where can they go? If they're a man who wants to know well Spanish classes, where can he go? And for a lot of people, the solution was like, let's make an app. And I said, okay, if you make an app, means you have a phone. It means that you have a charger for your phone and you have access to electricity. Means that you have enough data in your phone to download an app or you have access to Wi-Fi. Means that you have a phone that, like I have an iPhone S. Clubhouse is no longer able to download in this phone because it doesn't update anymore. Oh, wow. I didn't know so, that. Yeah. So if I have a phone that's older than this and the app is made, of course, for the latest version of the phones, then it's not... I cannot download it anymore. What if the person is over 60 and they don't know how to download an app? Or they got a it's, flip phone. Or they got a flip phone. That's also something that can happen. What if they didn't come here? What if they came here with nothing? Immediately, this is not accessible to them. Mm -hmm. So then a service designer could get involved and say, like, okay, I'm going to ask refugees what do they need. They trust a lot of word of mouth, for example. They're more likely to go to a service that is recommended by one of their peers or somebody that's like them, then go to a service recommended by the government. Then how do we put together a network? If we're sending them somewhere, we need a way to confirm that the places we're sending them are safe, that they provide quality of care. You are not gonna send somebody like right now that's escaping Afghanistan to a place when they only speak Farsi or to an association that only has people who speak Farsi. They need to speak Afghani. So how do we create this network? And the idea was to create a network and then, and then find refugees that are not freshly arrived that can help us spread the word of mouth to freshly arrived refugees. So create a network system that went beyond an app. So it, and also they're not going to use an app. Maybe it's going to be a booklet. Maybe it's going to be a set of cards. Maybe it's going to be something that they can share with each other something that's accessible. So that's basically what service design is. It's looking at a problem and finding a creative solution to it that it's not only innovative, but also something that can be implemented. Wow, that's really cool. And that's that's like, that's something I've never heard of. It sounds a little bit like, a, 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 like you said, it sound, takes into, that, into account the whole design thinking approach which my experience with UX design and, and, and um, interviewing, you know, users uh, for, for an interface eventually uh, or anything that sounds very similar to that, but in this case, something that's going to be more tangible in, in person. And, um, and it sounds like there's a lot of applications for, for not only public, but also private sector, you know, solutions. Yeah, of course. So to give you an example of a private company that does this, um, there is a, let me, it's called Life Bank Africa. Yeah, I have it on my phone. It's called Life Bank Africa. Um, it's owned by, wait, I don't want to butcher her name. I made a post about it on Instagram and I have her name here and I really don't want to butcher it because I admire her a lot and I actually voted for her, but I don't want to mispronounce her last name. She is right now actually up for an award as Innovative Africans under 30. And she is the head of Life Bank Africa. And where are you? Oh, the beauty of editing. Yeah. 
It's Temi Jiwa Tubuson. I can, I can, I can say the name. She's the founder of Life Bank Nigeria, actually. And what she is native from Nigeria. She might, uh, her parents migrated to the U.S. And when she went back to Nigeria as an adult, after getting her degree in the management of NGOs, she realized that women in Nigeria in rural areas were dying because there wasn't any blood. So they were given birth and just bleeding out on the table. And there was nothing that could be done because there wasn't any blood. So she, with her NGO background, she realized that there's not much that she can do. So she decided to open up private company, a private company called Life Bank Africa, in which they deliver blood in the same way that Uber delivers food. Oh, wow. Yeah. So a hospital can actually order blood that will be delivered from different parts of the country, basically by bike, just like Uber delivers food. And oh my gosh, that's cool. Yeah. And they get the blood from communities and they pay people to do the blood donations and they provide HIV tests. So they're also helping people know their status when it comes to HIV in exchange for a small fee. Like they get, the people get paid a small fee and they donate blood. And that is so, like just working as a private company, she can do all those things. As an NGO, she wouldn't be able to pay them. Wow. And so she she got consulting from a service designer or was she a service designer herself? Um, I think she got consulting from a service center. So she analyzed the problem from her stance and then she found a designer to help her create the infrastructure of her business. And then she got a, consul- a, business, a business consultant to help her set it up and stuff like that. So it's an involvement in a lot of different people. And that's something that I love about service design as well, that it requires a lot of parts. And it involves a lot of people and in the sense that if you're going to approach a problem in, let's say, to go back to the example of making the experience of a hospital better, it's not only designers. It involves involve patients, it involves doctors, it involves nurses, it involves people from management. It's all getting together from their different stands and approaching the problem from their different standpoints. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and I've, obviously I didn't, I never heard about it. And I bet there's a lot of people that haven't heard about it. So hopefully that shines the light to like this whole branch of design that you can get into that is so human oriented and yeah. sounds like there could be a lot of uh, benefits, you know, anywhere it's being used. Yeah. If anybody's curious, I, I mean, some books that I could recommend, um, one is called Service Design Doing. It was written in total by 200 people. <laughs> wow. It, it's a great book. It's called Service Design Doing. It's it's really good. It has a lot of case studies. It's very detailed in the process. And they always say that they provide a framework, but you can do with it whatever you want. So that's a great book, Service Design Doing. It's really interesting. Um, there's another book called Change by Design by Tim Brown, who is the founder of IDEO, um, in which he goes, he, he stays within the frame of IDEO talking about case studies. But it's really interesting, and it explains how different people have come, can come together to figure out the solution to a problem. So those are two books that are really good. And then there is another one that is for the same people that did uh, service design doing, but it's called service design thinking. And they go more deep into the process of design thinking and how creative professions can translate from thinking about concepts to actually doing concepts. Wow. That's so cool. That is so cool. So sounds like you got another year left from school. 
Yeah. Um, what What do you want to be doing in the future? Well, in the future, my plan, my immediate plan is that I want to graduate and I want to start a company with my friend Edna, who is with whom I'm doing the emotional agility tool. And I want that to be a business that she runs. I want to be co-founder, but she runs it <laughs> because she, uh, she has got to be the teachers and that's her passion. Like that's her baby, the project. I am, I am collaborating with the project and I'm very passionate about it. And, but I want her to run that company. I want, I want that problem to stay with her. And uh, so I want to do that as soon as I graduate. And then I would like to go work for a service design agency and do that or for the city or for Rotterdam and then be able to, yeah, use design thinking to help people. Then maybe switch countries again. I'm not sure if Ideo offered me a job, I would switch countries in a heartbeat. Just have to convince my boyfriend to do the same. So. <laughs> Ideo is that's one of the companies, yeah, the service design companies. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting company. They have done amazing work, and yeah, they will be lucky to have me. No, I'm just kidding, just kidding. I'm not that arrogant. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it sounds like it aligns very well. I think like with my values and everything. So I'd be very excited to work there. If not, if I cannot do any of those things. Um, I don't know, open my own service design agency, maybe. And yeah. eventually I want to be able to run projects in Latin America. So it's, it's something that I really want to do. I think there are a lot of problems in Latin America that need attention, that maybe bringing in a creative focus, uh, financial focus also. Like, I'm one of those people that don't think NGOs can do everything. If NGOs could fix all the problems in the world, they would have done it already. I think private businesses need to also be a part of it. And something like there's a certification that I want to do. Um, it's called Impact Economics with Stuart Williams, who is I found on Clubhouse, actually. And it's the idea that people can solve their problems. You just need to give them the system to do it. So he, he always says that the second we take down our, our foots, our, our feet from their throats and we let them thrive, they will thrive. So create systems or create companies or create advances that can help people in Latin America. There's one, for example, um, it's called Black Manta. It's a company in Spain, in the south of Spain, yeah. There were a lot of people that were selling uh, goods on the street, like bags and purses and in free markets and so on. So what Black Manta did is he got them all under a co-op. So they got to organize their finances better. They got to figure out a system so they don't have to be seven days a week there. They uh, they share into the income. They share into the expenses. So basically got 250 business own, small business owners, informal business owners to formalize under this co-op. And they're all doing great now, making legitimate businesses. The police cannot come in close. So, wow, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's that sounds really. You never think about that creating a co-op between different businesses to 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 fund that kind of thing. Yeah, especially because you have so many informal businesses in Latin America, and yeah, it's so disorganized. But it maybe there's a way to create a system in which they can all like exist without under one umbrella more legitimately according to the government size so maybe that could help or just 
maybe do what Temi did and figure out a safer way of women to have children in Latin America or figure out a way that resources can be established, can be scattered better. I don't know, like choose a problem. Like it's in service design, it's called wicked problems. Find a wicked problem and try to offer a creative solution to it. Wow. Yeah. And there's a lot of wicked problems in a lot of, <laughs> in a know, lot globally. of parts in a lot of parts of the world, but I keep thinking, okay, I speak Spanish and I come from there. So I, I yeah. guess I'll start there. Hell yeah, no, definitely. And they could use you. They could use someone like you. Um, and so would that be the question that I have was going to be like, what's your dream project to work on in, in the service design industry? Do you think that would be it? Like, or would it be something else? I, that's a, that's a good, my dream project. That's a tricky question. Uh, right now, the emotional agility tool is my dream project and setting up that company and being able, I, I, I keep telling Edna that, or not Edna, she actually agrees with me, but other people, and they tell me like, do you want, what do you want us to be? And I keep telling them, honestly, if I make a thing and it helps one kid express themselves and make sure that other people understand them, I'll be happy. If one kid is able to say, to his parents how they feel using this tool or explain to their teacher how they feel or make their emotions more clear, then I'm happy. If it works for one, it will work for 10. If it works for 10, it will work for 20 and, and so on. So right now that is my dream, getting that set up, make it a business, a sustainable business that actually works. Yeah. And then I'll figure out the next dream after that. That's really cool. You're living the dream. Um, kind of, I guess. <laughs> That's not not yet. We're we're working towards that. We're we're working. Uh-huh. We're walking. We're walking ahead towards the dream. Yeah. And I also want to have a dog. That's also part of the dream. Having a dog. That's also there. There you go. Dogs are dogs are important. I love dogs. Dogs are always a dream. <laughs> cool. So yeah, I think we're getting towards the end of the time, um, and it's been great. I, I definitely learned a lot of cool stuff from you. And go ahead. Happy that you learned that. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, definitely learning a lot of cool stuff, not only about you, about the stuff you're doing and, and uh, service design. But um, at this point, like where where would my audience be able to find you and where can they um, learn more about you? Well, um, I have a website called uh, june10th.site. It's like June, like the month, 10th, like 10th.site. Um, that's going through a redo like i'm gonna redo it because i wanted to be more focused toward service design so that's gonna have a redo um but also i'm on instagram as the official june 10th i'm sure that everything is gonna be in the show notes so i don't need to spell it and then i also have a podcast called do i need school to be in which josh is actually one of my guests we have to talk about that um it's a really fun show in which i interview people in the creative field about how they got into the field and who were their teachers and how they think education will go in the future because let's face it creative education hasn't changed much for something that's creative it's not very changing so yeah and in no way we're trashing formal education in no way i mean i got formal education um and i loved it so but we're all different and in my episode with you, we actually talk about the difference between being self-taught and formal education and what could be improved there and how you're a Renaissance man, a Renaissance man but not like Leonardo da Vinci. Who, uh, you actually talked, uh, told me about a character from the Aztecs, I think. Uh-huh. No, and, yeah. Yes, that one. Whose yeah. name I still cannot pronounce. Um, 
but yeah, it's a really fun show. That's called uh, Do I Need School to Be? The link on Instagram is Dean School to Be as the letter. Yes, the name was not available. Um, but yeah, it's uh, that's when you can find me and on Instagram as well. And yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks again for joining. Uh, I definitely uh, enjoyed my time again with you. Yeah, this is our second time, you know, doing podcasts together. So, yay, everyone... podcasters of the world unite! <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, but yeah, uh, I'll go ahead and uh, stop recording. But yeah, thanks yeah. a lot. Thank you for having me.